Well, it's good to be with you, uh, whether you're joining us in person at our outdoor service or you're tuning in through our online stream. Uh, welcome to Praxis, our second time in this new season of hybrid format. Um, if you were here for the first time or you watched online, uh, you'll notice that I am dressed more warmly this time because I was humbled and I learned my lesson. And I am also not using paper notes um, because of a certain incident that happened. I'm borrowing Chris's uh, iPad, so he's gracious and kind to lend that to me. Um, well, for those that don't know me, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Lighthouse. I oversee the uh, Praxis Ministry, which is this young adult ministry. And as a fellowship group, we have been studying the book of Romans. So we're going to resume in the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at a very difficult passage. Not difficult in terms of understanding it, but in its reception. And one of the healthy things about studying a book in its entirety is you do have to tackle passages that uh, might not be as palatable. Uh, we need a, the steady diet of God's word so that we are well-rounded Christians, so that we don't just cherry-pick our favorite passages from the Bible, but so that we understand the full counsel of God. And uh, what we're going to see tonight is, while this passage is tough uh, to receive, it is actually for our ultimate good, that we would come to appreciate Christ and glory in his gospel all the more. So tonight we're going to be closing out chapter 1. Uh, we'll resume where we left off in verse 24. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. I'll go ahead and read our passage for us, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. This is the word of God. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. God, we need your assistance now, Lord, to humble ourselves, that we would check our pride and ego, even our 
preconceptions of how you ought to operate at the door, that we might submit to the clear teaching of Scripture. Lord, may we gaze upon your character. May we fall back upon the theological truths that we know. And may they be precious to us even as we navigate through hard passages like this one. Father, we trust that you are good, sovereign, and wise. Father, we also trust that a bruised reed you will not break. But sometimes you do wound us to expose to us how sick and depraved we are, not so that we might just wallow in misery, but Lord, to show us the grace and loveliness of Christ. And so, Lord, teach us now that we might follow after Jesus, that we might grieve over what we once were and rejoice over the fact that we have been redeemed and washed by the blood of Christ. And so use your word to pierce and undo us that you might form and fashion us to be more and more like your son. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've titled tonight's message, Descending into Darkness. Descending into Darkness. I know it sounds like a horror flick, right? Which is somewhat appropriate. You know, I've never been a big fan of the genre. It doesn't make sense to me. You know, you pay your hard-earned money to watch something that puts you on high stress and probably shortens your life. I'd rather take my money if I'm going to do that and just go buy a burger. But okay if horror flicks are your cup of tea. And yet most of these movies have the same cliche setup, right? There's a scene where the music is eerie, it's dark, the floorboard creaks as this lonely girl hears something coming from underneath the basement. And you know as the audience that nothing good is coming. But instead of scurrying out of there and scrambling to safety, what does she do? She decides, hey, you know, it's 2 a.m. and I'm all by myself. For some reason, the lights don't turn on, but let me go down and investigate. I'm sure it's nothing more than a teddy bear. And with each step down those stairs, her fate becomes more certain. Peace out, right? Death is imminent. The irony, though, is that we, in real life, can emulate the same kind of madness. In fact, in tonight's passage, the Apostle Paul teaches how sin makes mankind, all human beings, delirious. How we play the fool and descend into the darkness. And we know nothing good is coming. And yet we keep going. Now it's been some time, but last time we were in the book of Romans, we studied verses 18 to 23. And Chris had the tough job of preaching on the wrath of God. Back in that passage, we were kind of given the bird's eye view. We learned how every individual is culpable before God, that we are all without excuse because creation itself announces the existence of God. That the mountains and seas, elephants and crickets, the pull of gravity and the song of birds attest to divine design, the fingerprint of God. And yet, instead of allowing this general revelation to prompt us to consider God and pursue Him, we choose to stay in the dark. We 
trade and exchange the glory of the immortal God for shadows, building our lives upon the shifting sand of our own idolatry. Overall, not a very heartwarming passage. Well, I hate to break it to you, but tonight it's going to get bleaker before it gets better. I mean, you can gather this just from a cursory look at our passage. Notice the threefold repetition in verses 24, 26, and 28. It creates this chilling chorus. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. And this harrowing refrain serves as our outline tonight, as steps, if you will, that take us down into the basement of our debauchery. But let me prepare us before we descend. Though our text is serious, it is scary, it's actually for our benefit, for our ultimate good. We will be haunted by the ugliness of sin. But that's precisely Paul's aim. When we find our sin both terrifying and deadly, then we're ready for the dose of medication. When sin becomes the clear problem, then Jesus becomes the clear solution. So Paul is not afraid to tell us how it is, to nudge us down these nasty steps. But like a sure guide, he does so to bring us out from the other side. Now, the first step down sin's stair is defective hearts. Defective hearts. Look again at verse 24. Paul writes, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. God now takes a more central and active role. So if you were with us from the previous section, we might write God off as a mere observer, that he stands idly by uh, by on the sideline, you know, thinking to himself, well, I've revealed my invisible attributes in creation. Let's now see how these humans will respond. We might assume that the ball is in our court with the prerogative of just blowing God off and then going our own way, doing what we want, living our life. And in some sense, that is true. But don't be mistaken. There are consequences for our choices, our actions. You play with fire, you're going to get burned. You see, no one walks away from God completely unscathed. No one exchanges the glory of the immortal God without being severely affected. Paul's not even talking about final judgment. He's showing us the present ramifications for spurning God. He says, therefore, God gave them up. You guys remember Augustus Gloop from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? He's one of the kids who uncovers a golden ticket and is granted backstage access to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Well, Augustus is an obese boy because he is obsessed with sweets. And so as Willy Wonka is giving a tour of his factory, pointing out all sorts of confectionery treats, Augustus is literally eating it all up. You know, he 
gorges himself on whatever his eyes land on, sampling everything along the way. But he meets his end, he meets his end when the group comes across that magical river flowing with chocolate. Chocolate. And Augustus, maybe like some of us, Augustus just can't help himself. But here's the real kicker. Willy Wonka does nothing to stop him. By this point, he's fed up with this boy's gluttony and greed. And so unrestrained, uninhibited, Augustus gives in to his insatiable appetite and slurps so much from the chocolate river that he loses his balance and he falls in. His unbridled desire leads to his demise. And that is what is being packaged into these four words here. God gave them up. You see, there comes a point in mankind's staunch rebellion that God no longer resists when God has had enough, steps out of the way, and lets us loose. Praxis, that should frighten us because we know how that story ends. We only need to read our Bibles. In fact, this phrase, God gave them up, harkens back to the Old Testament, where God allows Israel to eventually run wild, to do whatever they want. And what is the result? Enslaved into captivity, exiled and defeated at the hands of their enemy, death upon death upon death. Without God, Israel is a case study of wants that are unrestrained. You see, one of the scariest realities for sinners is to get exactly what they want, their sin. Which is why God is not complicit in our demise. He is not releasing us to something we despise, abhor, begrudge, or don't want anything, don't want any part of. You know, Augustus did not hate chocolate. Read the rest of this text. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Strong word. To capture strong desire. Lust. It's what we crave, what we yearn for. And I appreciate how specific the apostle is here. It says lust of their hearts. Kind of interesting. Tells us something. Praxis, we have heart problems, first and foremost. But the heart of the matter is a matter with a heart. And this is so crucial to understand. It makes all the difference in nailing the correct diagnosis. Because if the blame lies out there with our society, with our situation or something external, then we aren't held accountable for our actions, for our sin. We can worm our way out of guilt. You know, well, I just grew up in poverty. My father was an alcoholic. I was born this way. But what is the call of Christ? To be born again. To recognize our defective hearts, confess sin, die to self, plead for grace, hasten to Jesus, and be given new life. A new heart. Be transformed. Now, sure, our situation, our family background, and even our genetic makeup can contribute or predispose us to sin, 
But according to the Bible, according to Holy Scripture, these variables, these factors are not the source. You know, I may be tempted to gamble away my savings because I watch my parents do the same or lash out in anger since my boss is coming down on me really hard. But that's not why I sin. That's just when I sin. Where does God put his finger? Upon our defective hearts. And to press us further, Paul keys in on a particular sin that engages our entire faculty. He says, lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. He's talking about sexual immorality. Now we might be fast to conclude such impurity, well, that's a result of indulging our flesh. That these sins we commit solely with our bodies. It's easy to jump to that conclusion. But Paul here hands us the pathology report. Sexual impurity is actually comprehensive. It is holistic. It springs from a defective heart to perverse minds to the exercise of arms, legs, limbs, and bodies for dishonor. And this really strikes a nerve because I think sexual impurity is probably, is probably when we feel most given over to our defective hearts, enslaved to our sinful lust. It's where we poignantly sense the absence of God's gracious restraint. When on impulse, we carry out our carnal desires, which is what's happened behind the scene. Look again at verse 25. He says, because, so here's the reason, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. It's theological. Now, most Bible translations here read a lie. But in the original, in the Greek, the definite article is there. That they exchange the truth about God for the lie. The lie. Do you see the significance? You know, if ministry associate Chris came up to me and said, I'm a man, I would be like, oh, cool. Good for you. But if he came up to me and he said, I'm the man, I'd be like, oh, my bad. Right? See the difference there? That indefinite article handpicks one out of many. It is just a lie. But the definite article boasts to be the only one. This is the lie, the lie. Idolatry is not one sin we commit in a collection of others. It is the carnal one. It is forfeiting the one true living God for the false idols of this world. It is nothing short of serving the creature rather than the creator. And when you displace God with anything, whether it be career, money, fame, sex, you will be left sorely disappointed. Sure, they may provide some temporary relief or satisfaction, but these idols cannot shoulder the weight of your hopes and dreams, your pains and sorrow, of your very soul and life. They will break under that kind of pressure, and guess what? They will leave you broken as well. It's like putting the smallest planet, little Mercury, 
in the middle of your universe, and everything will careen out of orbit. Only God can hold everything together when he is in his proper place, front and center. You see, it should not surprise us that we indulge in sexual impurity when we've committed treason to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. In this verse, the word for worship speaks of reverential awe. On the flip side, the word served is often used in the context of religious service. So these two words, they paint a compelling picture. No one sins reluctantly or accidentally. Man is delighted and devoted to his idol. And there is no idol, no idol we cherish more than ourselves. So when God creates sex and declares, this gift I have created to be enjoyed in covenant marriage between husband and wife, what do we do? We elevate ourselves over God and say, no, I want it my way. Immediate gratification, pleasure according to my plans, my wishes, my terms, my hormones, because I serve me. That's what it boils down to. And God responds, fine. You want to see how far down the rabbit hole goes? How dark things can get in your addiction, your obsession to self-sin and sexual impurity? Well, then be my guest. And here we read those chilling words again. God gave them up. We descend down sin's stairs to the second step from defective hearts to second, dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. Read in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Paul here is going to elaborate on sexual impurity. Now, I need to preface. We live in a time where sexuality is largely defined by self. What feels right must be right. What comes natural must be good. But let me ask, what is the basis of such an ethic and morality? Is it really determined by the whims of an ever-changing society, by the convictions of the majority? Does it originate intuitively within each one of us? Who gets to define what is right and wrong, natural and unnatural? It is a question of authority. And in a day and age where our world is clearly dysfunctional, where scandals are commonplace, where sin not only abounds but is approved, listen, we don't need another psychologist's opinion, the musings of a celebrity, or the thoughts of a politician. We don't need the folly of flawed man. What we need is the wisdom of God, the Word of God. Which is why, as a church, as a fellowship group, we are committed to the study of Scripture because we need instruction from outside of ourselves. We need authority from above that God gets the final word speaking into our fallen world. And I stress all of this because what we're about to discuss is controversial. It is charged and it is a sensitive topic, but there's no way to skirt around this. Paul is going to talk about homosexuality. 
Now, for many of us, if not all, we're automatically uncomfortable. This is personal. It hits close to home. We know people who identify or struggle with same-sex attraction. Coworkers, friends, family members, people in the church, people in praxis maybe, perhaps some of you. And as Christians, we want to be careful and wield both the love of God and the truth of God. To say unabashedly from Scripture that God loves sinners, homosexuals included. And to still say in the same breath, unabashedly, that God hates sin, homosexuality included. You know, maybe we haven't done a good job at doing this. I've thrown my cap into the ring as well. But we need to ask for forgiveness, pray for grace, and strive to uphold both. The church should, strangely enough, be the most comfortable and uncomfortable place for recovering sinners. It's a refuge where all are welcomed and loved, but also a hospital where cancer is treated as cancer, sin as sin, so that we might be restored. We want to be true in loving, not disparaging homosexuals, but caring and befriending them. But we also want to love with the truth, addressing sin so that people see their need for a Savior. I mean, notice how Paul begins this section. He doesn't immediately harp on same-sex attraction. He broadens the scope to encompass all sinful passions, homosexual or heterosexual. Both are dishonorable before God. But it still begs the question as we move further into the text, Why does Paul focus on homosexuality? Is he just discriminating? Is he just being mean, insensitive? No, Paul features homosexuality because it patently illustrates what he's just taught in verse 25. That's why verse 26 begins with a for this reason. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations For those that are contrary to nature, we'll stop there. See, homosexuality graphically portrays the exchange between what's natural and what's unnatural. Paul is displaying to us how corrupted by sin we are when it taints even the most intimate and precious of relationships. So in the same way that idolatry is unnatural in God's design for human beings in worship, So homosexuality is unnatural in God's design in marriage. See the parallel there? You recall the creation account? When God breathes life into Adam and provides for him a helpmate, Eve, as his wife. And then what does he do? He blesses this holy matrimony by commanding them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Well, not to be crass, but homosexuality stands diametrically opposed to fulfilling the divine mandate. It prevents mankind from carrying out their God-given mission. And this is heightened all the more when you consider the special honor that God bestows upon marriage. Paul, quoting Genesis in Ephesians 5, calls marriage 
a mystery. Why is it a mystery? Well, because this earthly relationship is still also a divine institution that can be a beacon to the good news in a unique, particular way, to be a living portrait of the gospel of Christ and his bride. But there is no other way to say this. Homosexuality ruins that powerful metaphor. So Paul spotlights same-sex attraction to showcase how perverse and profound sin is. But I want to be clear. All sin is despicable, evil. But homosexuality is brazen by its blatancy. But if we blindly ignore the warning, well, down we go and we descend another step. Our third and last step down the darkness from defective hearts to dishonorable passions, to finally debased minds. Debased minds. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now there's a wordplay here in this verse between acknowledge and debased. To bring it out, you could paraphrase verse 28 as, and since they did not see God worthy in their minds, God gave them up to a worthless mind. Turning away from God, frankly, is intellectual suicide. Now, I'm not saying that sinners aren't smart and can't excel in their industries like science, tech, or health. But when it comes to absolute truths, final matters, ultimate realities, Paul calls them warped in their thinking. And it kind of makes sense, right? When you effectively remove God from the equation, from existence, well, then your perception of existence is going to be heavily distorted. There's no way around that. And this reveals how pervasive sin is, that it gets into our minds. It has infiltrated our head, contaminating, clouding it all. So our thoughts, our logic, our belief, our calculations. It's bad enough that we use our minds at times to sin. It's worse that we can't assess ourselves and our sin rightly. The prophet Isaiah condemns, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness? Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? That is a sad statement because what hope is there for those who are so off in their judgment that they can't discern good from evil? A debased mind manufactures a whole production line of sin. And Paul brings us to the conveyor belt in verses 29 to 31. He gives us the proof. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, Uh, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The apostle does this elsewhere in his other letters, but this, this is the longest list of sin in the New Testament. Now we could take our time and really analyze and dissect every vice, But I don't think that's Paul's intention here. He means to pile it on. 
He wants us to be buried, to be overwhelmed until we're waving the white flag. I mean, look at how exhaustive this is. It's just full of, filled with. We are submerged under this tidal wave, so we're robbed of our voice. Because what can we say? Sure, you might not personally struggle with homosexuality or every sin mentioned here, but can any of us, can any of us claim to be completely innocent, untainted? This barrage of vices also serves another purpose. Paul's not only exposing our culpability before God, but he's also teaching how this all connects and circles back to our refusal to worship God. Again, the apostle is drawing the correlation between being given up by God and all that's wrong in our world. And Paul is underlying that cause and effect dynamic. And when we forsake God and he pulls back his gracious hand, we plunge into a whole swamp of sin. I think John Piper is insightful here. He says, quote, If America has the highest murder rate in the Western world, it has to do with God. If our executives are greedy, it has to do with God. If our politicians are deceitful, it has to do with God. If we gossip about each other behind the back, it has to do with God. If our talk show hosts are insolent and boastful, it has to do with God. If our children are disobedient to parents, it has to do with God. If we are untrustworthy and don't keep our marriage vows, it has to do with God. If we are blind to obvious wrongs and are unloving and unmerciful, it has to do with God. End quote. In summary, it is because we do not acknowledge God as God. Praxis, do you feel the gravity of this? Look, rejecting God is no minor offense. It is catastrophic. The catalyst for all evil and fallenness we see around us and inside of us. We know our morality is bankrupt when we're no longer appalled by sin, but instead we applaud those who participate in it. Verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In the original, God's decree is actually God's righteous decree, and it's fronted for emphasis. And Paul is stressing our weakness can't be passed off for ignorance because of one, our own conduct, that we do these things, but more damning, number two, those we commend and clap for. While our moral compass is off, we instinctively know that what we do at times is wrong. It's intuitive. When we cheat on our taxes, take credit for someone else's hard work or snap back at our parents, we can feel the guilt rising. No one lies for the first time as a kid without a tinge of remorse. But calluses, calluses form when something is repeated over and over and over again. And one of the best methods to harden yourself or to hush a nagging conscience 
Well, you just invite others to join in. Misery loves company. Instead of allowing conviction over sin lead us to repentance and to do what's right, we muffle that voice by convincing others to engage in what's wrong. It's why when you were little enough to know good, you persuaded your little brother to help you cover up that shattered window or to steal from the store as well. It's why peer pressure is a sneaky tactic to turn the tables, to throw the attention off of yourself and spotlight the one who hasn't caved into temptation. And do this long enough across centuries and cities of sinners, and the moral decay is not so astonishing. Recently, a, a writer penned a pretty angry article calling for the removal of a Christian university from plane in March Madness. Never mind that this is a basketball tournament where sports teams, you know, they're not actually championing or giving a speech about their virtues and views, but they're just competing in a game, in a game that really has no significance and ramifications for eternity. And still, this writer insisted that what the Christian college stood for was toxic and a threat to society. Now, what were these harmful beliefs and values? Well, the private institution was criticized for supporting, I quote, fetishized chastity and abstinence. Fetishized chastity and abstinence. Let that sink in. This Christian school was chastised for being chaste. The bizarre fetish they were accused of? Abstinence. When did teaching abstinence or being a virgin be considered bad, a blemish? When did advocating for traditional marriage or the lives of the unborn become an evil, despicable thing or a violation of rights? Why is there more shock today when we encounter someone who hasn't smoked or gotten drunk than someone who has. Perhaps the flip-flop nature of our culture is not an indication of how naive Christians are, but an indictment of how corrupt our world has become. Jesus was right. When the blind lead the blind, there's no way out of the darkness. The conscience is cauterized when we celebrate the very things that bring about and demand our death when we no longer have the capacity to discern, distinguish right from wrong, good from evil, creature from creator. But that's why, as hard as this passage is to receive, I'm so thankful the Apostle Paul doesn't spare us the gory details. He cares more about our souls than our hurt feelings. Look, if the evil around and inside of us can ultimately be chalked up to some circumstance or sickness, then listen, the gospel is rendered powerless. Because in this lifetime, God does not promise, he does not guarantee better days or to heal broken bodies or minds. But you know what he does promise? Not necessarily to deal with our circumstance or sickness, but to deal with our sin and praise God he has. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says this, 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That sounds mean, exclusive. And yet Paul continues, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the, greed, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, and it all turns here, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love what one pastor says. He says, the only sinner who can successfully battle sin is the justified sinner. Hear that again. The only sinner who can successfully battle sin is the justified sinner. And listen, you can only be justified when you confess your wretchedness regardless of what your particular vice is. So take heart, Christian. Yes, God gives wicked men over to sin, but that is not all that he does. He has given something else. He's given us his son. And there is an exchange more startling than trading the truth of God for the lie or natural relations for dishonorable one. The greatest exchange in the Bible is the one we find at the cross when Jesus takes our place that we might be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, our passage shows us the horrors of continuing in sin the peril of descending deeper into the darkness. And we're given such a grim picture so that we fly fast for the light. So we retreat quickly and back to the safe shores of verses 16 and 17. The gospel in a nutshell, Romans 1, 16, 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness is of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. God, the righteous shall live by faith, not by their righteous or unrighteous deed, but by holding fast to Christ, by acknowledging our destitution, our moral bankruptcy, our vileness. And yet, at the same time, seeing Christ as lovely because the darkness of our sin showcases the brilliance and grace of Jesus Christ. That he would die on the cross to deal with our sin, to make us new, to transform us, that we might be new creation, or that the old has passed away. And so instead of being relinquished to sin, we can let go of misplaced identities and things we've struggled with for so long, because your word is true and that you've given us wisdom from above. Lord, I pray that as we consider your word, 
Lord, that you would pierce us, harpoon us and draw us back to you, that we might live for you, and we might trust your character and your goodness. And so be with us even as we sing now of your truth, to have it rehearse and ruminating in our hearts, that it would spill over into all areas of life, how we interact with other sinners, how we view our own sin, how we discuss, encourage, and hold each other accountable in our small groups. And so we need your help desperately. We look to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.